Thanks for joining us, Adam. Over to you today. Thanks. Thank you very much, Sarah, and uh, thanks for having me. I'd like to thank yourself and Myosh um, for giving me the opportunity to, to speak today. Uh, and thank you for the intro. Uh, I was going to do a little one myself, but basically you stole all my thunder. So uh, I'll just touch on my background. So I've, I've worked in underground mining basically for the last uh, 15 years. Uh, I started off in operational roles, um, just in the day-to-day -day, uh, workings underground. And then after about five years, I moved into safety and training roles, uh, which then led into uh, management roles. And more recently, uh, moved from mining and I worked on a tunnel infrastructure project uh, here in Sydney, uh, which was a, a pretty big project, uh, thousands of people uh, on, on the site each day. Uh, and it was good to see something similar, although uh, a little bit different and uh, see how that related to mining. Um, yeah, so as you can see, the uh, title here is called The Intangibles uh, and it's probably where my focus lies. I, I like to look at the things that we can't or we don't measure well or can't be measured that easily. Uh, so as um, Sarah mentioned, I, I spoke at the MindSafe conference the other week. Uh, this talk covers some of the same areas, although it's a little bit different. And uh, after preparing for the last uh, couple of weeks about this talk, I decided to do a last minute change at about uh, 11 o'clock last night. So hopefully it works for okay. And um, there are some people here that can do a little survey that will pop up shortly because um, I sort of uh, need their answers to touch on as I go through the, the uh, talk. So uh, we'll get started on that. There's a QR code. Um, if you scan that QR code, the survey will pop up. Uh, if you're on your phone, you might be able to just type in the, the link there. Uh, and hopefully there's some people on that can complete it and I'll get some answers as we go. So. I'll uh, leave that in your capable hands and see where we get to. And hopefully it works. I won't wait too long um, before I kick off, but. Um, We'll see if they're coming through. Oh, first one's there, so thank you for the first person who completed that. Uh, Sarah said there wasn't a massive turnout, so probably good. I was, thought if I was lucky to get a big crowd, it might uh, crash Survey Monkey by getting too many people doing it at once. Now, there's a few coming through now, so I'll uh, kick it off. So these two uh, questions here are probably two that uh, I focus on the most and have probably been coming back and I've continually been uh, re-looking at them and, and seeing where I come from and and basically what what is safety and how do we look at it and what do we do? What other results we expect, how do we measure it, all those sort of things. And I think uh, our language around that uh, 
for instance, we very often say safety first. So looking uh, at it from a like a equation perspective, to me that we're, we're looking at safety as though it is another, something separate to the task itself. And therefore you have to do the safety thing with the task uh, to get the safe outcome. And uh, the more research I've done uh, and learning that I've done, it's probably taking me further away from that. And I personally see safety as an outcome and it's a, a result of getting other things right. Uh, and so the beliefs we have about safety play sort of hand in hand uh, with that. Um, so when we look at it, as I said, we say safety first a lot of the time. We have safety culture, we have safety leadership. I think we probably need to get away from giving them those titles and, and just have it as culture and leadership with safety being a fundamental part of it, not a separate part of it. Um, and I think that's the first step that we can take to, to maybe look at getting some uh, better results. So with the beliefs about safety, uh, there's obviously the system side of things, the culture side of things, and then there's a lot of other things that go hand in hand with that, whether we think it's just compliance to a system or a compliance to legislation, whether it's uh, the uh, people not hurting themselves and, and is it it's safe if uh, we're not having incidents? Does it all play hand in hand? And those, those beliefs that we have uh, are pretty important. And the first reason why I'll touch on beliefs is that uh, there's two reasons. The first one being the beliefs are sort of the basis for our end results. Uh, all our emotions come from our beliefs and then our actions come from our emotions. And uh, as a result, our actions end up being our results. And that's why what we believe uh, definitely is very important when it comes to safety. Uh, in the sense that if something, if something or someone goes against what our beliefs are, then how do we react to that? And that reaction will then lead to uh, what we do and will give us the result. So uh, although they sort of sit deep down and we mightn't um, go and look at them as often as we should if we ever do, but our beliefs in that sense are pretty important because um, our actions then create the environment um, that everyone works with. So I'd recommend that uh, people and organisations really try and look at that on a deeper level and uh, find out what their actual beliefs about safety are and how they think about and how they look at safety. So the first question uh, that I asked there, which was what is the purpose of the safety management system? I'll just have a quick look. Uh, we've got a few through. Um, so, Nope, and not in the order that I uh, did them.
Sorry about that. Confused myself. I actually forgot to put that question in. So, uh, the purpose of the system, is it to comply with legislation? Is it to keep people safe or is it both? So I would suggest that most people would say both, but I think that we really need to ask the question, uh, does it actually do what we want it to do? Um, and there's a reason for that, which I'll get to shortly, but uh, whenever we do the things that we do, all those KPIs that we measure, the inspections that we do, I think the first question we need to ask is, are they doing what we actually think they do? And the reason being that we have those beliefs um, and they're our beliefs, but what, are, what do the people who are doing the job, uh, what do they believe? And do their beliefs align with ours? Uh, I think most people would agree that if you're out of alignment, then things don't uh, run as smoothly as they would uh, if you were in alignment. Going into this next slide, so this was from a, a previous survey I did a few years ago uh, in relation to, uh, was with some underground miners. Uh, there was about 300 surveys completed. Um, and one of the, this was one of the questions in relation to the safety management system. And their uh, bottom answer there, I think is, is uh, pretty important. So 20%, or 20, nearly 21% of the people that were surveyed were unsure if their company even had a safety management system. And I guess the question I ask from that is, uh, if we look at the system as, as keeping people safe, if 21% of the people who work uh, for the company and allegedly supposedly use that system, if they don't even know it exists, can that keep them safe? And I guess that's where we need to get the alignment right uh, and make sure that what we're actually doing uh, aligns with what the people doing the task uh, believe and it, is it doing what we want it to do. So the next question, uh, which was, what does, do we spend more time on, safety or compliance? Uh, from the surveys done, We had uh, so 71% said that uh, they rely on system or systems and compliance is where they spend more time. Uh, and sorry, I did tell a porky pie before uh, that question was there. 86% um, the previous question about uh, what is the purpose of the safety management system. 86% said both and complying with legislation said one. Um, so there was no one who uh, had the standout of keeping the employees safe. So apologize for that, I uh, didn't see it. Uh, but moving on to this one. So we spend most of our time uh, on systems and compliance. Uh, well, 70% against 30%. Um, say so that time spent there. So uh, what we're spending our time on, are we getting the best bang for our buck? 
is probably um, where I'll be looking at that. So with that, uh, looking at high performance teams, we're probably jumping out of the safety sphere here. Uh, and I like reading about some high performance coaches. Uh, there's three in particular. Um, I'll probably talk about two here today. One's name's Owen Eastwood and the other one's Michael Gervais. Um, and I'll touch on a, a podcast that they did together and I'd recommend anyone uh, listening to that to get um, some different perspectives about performance. Uh, and in that, uh, Owen talks about a study that was conducted by the uh, English Institute of Sport. And that uh, paper suggested that 70% of behaviours came from the environment um, that people were in, not the system. So uh, that was a, a systems versus environment paper and it showed up that 70% of those behaviours come from the, the environment that's created. So I guess that's the point I was trying to make there. We're spending a lot of time on, on systems and compliance um, when there's uh, information out there that suggests uh, that spending the time on the environment would probably have a greater benefit for us. And this one here was also from a, a it's in relation to alignment um, and from a, a survey I'd done with a, a company I did some work with. Uh, and as you can see there with the senior leaders, um, compared to the employees, the, the answers uh, were very different. So the, the question I asked there was what, what makes mining safe? It was a, a mining company, so specifically related to them. And uh, the senior leaders were uh, with you guys who just answered that, and it's sitting at about 70% there too. Uh, they said 70% um, that the safety management system what was is what made mining safe, whereas the, the employees were about 70% saying that the people doing the task were what uh, made mining safe. So being out of alignment, as I mentioned earlier, it uh, makes it a bit hard. So senior leaders are, are tipping 70% of their, or the majority of their time into that system to get that system right. Yet the employees are saying that it's, it's them or the culture or, or the environment that is uh, giving giving them the results of, of making mining safe. So this brings us to the second point about our beliefs um, and that question at the bottom there, who's going to change? So it's not behaviours that we need to change, it's, it's the beliefs um, that need to change. And that's uh, a bit more complicated and not quite as easy as saying, uh, I think you need to do this differently. So this is um, the pictures in the way there, but uh, so at the bottom with beliefs, if if we need any beliefs to change, we have the belief itself. And then the next thing we have to look at is do, do they have, or does the person have the capacity to change? Do they have the training? Do they have that capability um, to change? And if they do, great. If they don't, then that's something that can easily be worked on and we can go around and uh, help them out with that and get them trained up. Um, 
and, and get that part of it done. But there's all, then we have to look at the next step, which is the value. So again, they might have the, their belief, they have the capability to change, but do they value that change? And is that change going to, to benefit them? They also need that. And then finally, and the hardest thing to change is if, if that belief is a part of their identity. Uh, I don't think you can see identity there, but um, that's what it's saying behind uh, uh, the screen. Um, so it's not that easy to change someone's identity. And, and again, outside of the safety scope, the, the example, it's probably the easiest give is, is smoking. So do people have the capacity to stop smoking? Yes, they do. Uh, do they value it? Yep, I imagine most people would say smoking is harmful to me. Uh, it could kill me if I don't stop. But the hard bit, the problem they come is they look at it and it's part of their identity is that they're a smoker. Um, so that's, you have to get all those three things lined up and be able to change those things to be able to change that belief. Uh, and I think that directly relates uh, to safety and some of the things that we talk about when, when things go wrong. And just to throw uh, one more spanner in the works, the environment sits under those beliefs. So we can have all those things that people can have the capability to stop smoking. They can see the benefit in it. Uh, they can change their identity from being a smoker to a non-smoker. But if the environment they're in, if everyone they work with or wherever it may be, if everyone there smokes, then that also adds another layer of uh, of that change. It just makes it that little bit more difficult. Uh, so it's quite a complex thing and it's probably uh, goes a little way to explaining why it is so so difficult to uh, changing behaviours. So then the next question I chucked out there was what do you think is more important? Sorry. Just gonna open it back up again. We've got compliance to safety or creating an environment of trust. And uh, again, 70% said creating the environment of trust, whereas uh, just under 30% uh, said compliance to the safety management system. So again, there's a bit of misalignment with even the, the people listening here where uh, we're spending our time on the, on the system, yet we think it's more important to, to create that trust. Um, so that's... Again, I think we've got to go back and, and really look at, at uh, what we're doing and, and why we're doing it and, and what we want to achieve with that. So what is an environment of trust? Uh, well, the buzzword in safety at the moment is, is psychological safety. Uh, Owen Eastwood, the guy I mentioned a bit before, he called it, he called it belonging and he's written a book called um, By That Title. Uh, again, it's a a book I'd recommend uh, everyone read. Um, he's a, a pretty cool guy and and uh, got his his beliefs from from experience and and uh, his life growing up. 
there's also uh, a, there's a billionaire named Ray Dalio, again, written another book called Principles. Uh, it's a pretty intense book. Um, it's about 700 pages long, so there's a bit of information in, in it, but uh, there's definitely some, some wisdom and, and he calls it meaningful, uh, creating meaningful relationships. Uh, so in reality, I think, I don't think it really matters what, what we call it, um, but really it is it's just about caring for the people who, who work for you. It might seem a bit airy-fairy, but um, if you care for them and they understand that, then it just creates this extra room um, where if things do go wrong, you get that little bit of a buffer that you mightn't have to do things perfectly um, because there is that level of trust. And, and Ray, Ray Dalio, um, he calls, one of his other principles is, is uh, radical truth and radical transparency. Uh, and his workforce, they're very, uh, they're probably, well, I guess blunt is probably the, the best word um, to use, but that, that works for them. And, and the reason he says that they can do that is because that, his employees know that he, he loves them. And, uh, and that's the reason behind it, that underneath the, the bluntness, there is, it's coming from a, a position of care, um, not from any position of fear or anything like that. Um, and just that trust that, that allows the people doing the work not to have fear of making mistakes. They have the, the, the confidence to speak up. They know they won't get um, shot down, they will be listened to, and uh, just having that, um, as I said, gives that that extra buffer. And um, when the more information you get, uh, the better answers you come up with. So, allowing that two-way consultation back and forth, um, it is pretty important. And 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 consultation is a part of legislation where we're required to, to consult with the workforce to, to come up with how we do things and uh, from experience I think we possibly pay lip service to that a little bit um, moving on to the next one what do you think is the highest standard and uh, well 100% of us said commitment uh, not compliance and that's again to me pretty interesting because we constantly talk about compliance and and uh, commitment isn't uh, mentioned as often uh, so yeah very interesting that one and again this is directly related to consultation because people won't commit uh, if they don't have the ability to say no to something. Uh, so we're eventually, essentially telling them in compliance, we're telling them what they need to do. Um, they don't have a choice, they have to do that. Uh, and that's the only way to get it done. And I think, personally, I think compliance is a, is a pretty mediocre standard. Um, and it doesn't, again, in relation to the uh, environment, it's not, creating a, an environment of high performance. Um, so uh, with the answers given there, I think it's definitely clear that we, we need to try and um, 
get commitment to what we're doing um, and we get commitment to our system through consulting uh, with those workers that, uh, that are employed to, to do the job. Uh, and just probably uh, going a bit sideways with this, even the language we use around compliance. So uh, it's it's uh, when I was doing the the talk uh, when I was writing the, this the talk for the MindSafe conference. That was when uh, Ash Barty retired, and uh, our Prime Minister at the time, who just recently uh, lost his job. Uh, he tweeted uh, hey, something along the lines of, Ash, your, your commitment to excellence throughout your career uh, was what got you to the top. And I, I kind of found it funny at the time because I was writing about commitment. So even the way we use that language shows that commitment uh, is sits above compliance. It wasn't Hey, Ash, uh, you complied with excellence to, to get to the top. It was you committed yourself to that excellence. So uh, our everyday language around that stuff um, is, is pretty important, and I think it tells a story in itself. I'll take that to a, a work example um, from my role on the tunnel where uh, one of our biggest hazards there was, was silicosis, um, working in, in the sandstone had really high levels of, of uh, silica. Um, so it was a day-to-day -day battle and, and we had mandatory um, rules in place about wearing masks. Uh, and obviously wearing a mask for 12 hours, 10 or 12 hours a day is pretty uncomfortable. They're not the greatest thing, but it was our last level. We, we had a lot of things in place to um, manage that dust, uh, but we still relied on that, that final mask to uh, do a lot of the work for us. And regularly people say, you know, we need to wear our masks, we need to comply with our system. And I, I think there's an error in that because we weren't not really looking for compliance in the system. We're actually looking uh, at stopping people getting silicosis. So even the way we use that language around things like that, we're not, we don't want to comply, we do, sorry, we do want to comply with the system, but the main aim is to stop ourselves uh, getting silicosis and or getting any uh, injury for that matter. Um, so our language is uh, pretty important. And uh, I don't think anyone uh, defines it better than um, David Marquette. Uh, he's a pretty interesting guy as well. Um, so his definition is there, commitment comes from within, whereas compliance is first from an, an external source. Uh, commitment is more powerful because it is an intrinsic motivator. Commitment invites full, participate, full participation, engagement and discretionary effort, where compliance invites doing just enough to get by get through or get it done. So again, I'd recommend any of David Murray. He's written two books. Uh, Leadership is Language is one there. Uh, is his second one. His first one's called Turn the Ship Around. And I'll 
we've got a bit of time uh, within the hour, so I'll uh, touch on his story. He was a, a captain of a of a Navy submarine, uh, and before he got put in charge, he was told he was he was going to to the submarine. Uh, we'll call it A. I can't remember exactly what its name was. So he knew that about twelve months out, uh, and he studied that submarine inside and out, and knew every little nut, bolt, and screw uh, in regards to it. And then, unfortunately, about two weeks before he was due to start on the ship, he actually got told he was going to another one called the Santa Fe. And uh, the Santa Fe uh, was the worst performing submarine. I think it was actually the worst performing ship in the US Navy. So uh, they're regularly audited and, and stuff like that as, as safety uh, orders itself regularly. And he was put in, in charge of the, the worst performing uh, ship. Uh, and he went into it uh, with an open mind, uh, full of curiosity. And he probably had an, an epiphany moment um, a week out before they were going to do their first audit. They went out on, a, on an exercise. And uh, as part of that exercise, um, he wanted to put the crew under a bit of pressure um, to see how they'd react. And he asked his second in command to issue an order, which he did. Uh, and then that second command told the poor little helmsman, I think his title was, that uh, he needed to, to put the ship into two-thirds speed. And uh, David Marquette said he looked at the bloke and he did nothing and he just started shaking. Uh, and then he asked him why he didn't put it into two-thirds and the ship didn't have it. So every other submarine that David Marquette had been on had had uh, a two-third speed. Uh, and this one didn't. So then he asked his second in command, uh, did you know? And the second in command said, yes, I, I did know that it didn't have it. And then he goes, well, why did you issue the order? And he said, because you told me to. And uh, he looked at that and thought about it and went, uh, okay, what if I'm wrong? What happens then? So he changed the whole way that he managed it. And the biggest change that he made uh, was that he said that he was going to stop giving orders um, and he calls it intent-based leadership where it, uh, they take away all top-down monitoring and, it, and uh, it comes from the bottom up and they had some pretty uh, incredible results. Uh, within 12 months, they were the best performing ship and within two years, they, were, they had the, the best result of any ship that had ever been tested in uh, the US Navy. So if we change um, the environment that we're working in, uh, the results can come uh, pretty quickly um, when it's done right. So this is just uh, a little picture here of in relation to coaching. And again, I'll relate it back to environment and uh, the communication and consultation part. So uh, this is, Michael Gervais spoke about this in uh, one of his podcasts and uh, he's a sports psychologist, uh, works with some uh, pretty cool teams, works with uh, the Seattle Seahawks NFL team uh, as well as uh, the Red Bull team and everyone on that Red Bull team. So uh, pretty high-performing guys 
um, that do some pretty freakish stuff. And, and he said there's four four levels of coaching. And as you can see there, the bottom one's amateur, and above that's performance, and there's high uh, high performance, and then elite. And he said that the picture actually should look more like that. And he said again, there's one very clear uh, difference between those bottom two and the top two. Uh, yet there's a vast difference in uh, in their performance. And he said the the main difference was that in those bottom two, that the coach does all the talking, and in the top two, the coach does all the listening. Uh, so the higher performing teams, as they get to the top, they all it all comes from the bottom uh, through to the coaches. They listen and they create an environment, and and uh, it's visible uh, to me here. Uh, in Australia, and I don't know if uh, the people online are uh, East Coast or West Coast, but uh, and it breaks my heart to say this, being from New South Wales, but but Wayne Bennett uh, appears to create that environment. He, he has some players that go to his teams that uh, don't perform that great, but as soon as he gets them uh, in his side, they turn into superstars, and uh, that's uh, to me is a he creates that environment where those people uh, certainly can flourish. Which leads me into the last question. What would you prefer your employees to do? Be obedient or take responsibility for what they do? All right, two seconds. And again, we're, we're sitting at 100% um, that we'd want them to take responsibility. Yeah. Uh, obedience is directly related to compliance where they're, they're doing what they're told. So again, we're, we're focusing and doing things that is in direct opposition to uh, where we where we really want to be and, and what we want to do. Um, and with responsibility, it was one of the things that David Marquette spoke about and he said it needs to sit at uh, the correct level. So the people doing the, the tasks need to be the ones who, who have the, the power to make those decisions and, and actually take responsibility um, for what they for what they're doing and uh, it goes hand in hand we ask whenever you ask who's responsible for safety uh, the, the pretty standard answer from that is is everyone um, but it does need that little disclaimer uh, that there are different levels of responsibilities for different people for the same for the same task and and in broad terms uh, I see that uh, the organisation is, is responsible for creating uh, the environment that the work's getting taken in. And in that environment, it, it covers everything from providing, uh, again, things related directly back to legislation, providing training, providing the correct equipment to do the task, and then uh, the people doing it are actually responsible. So very simple example using a hammer uh, 
the the organisation needs to provide the person with the hammer they need to to make sure they're trained in using it. And then uh, if the person hits themselves, if the person has all that they need and then they hit themselves with that with the hammer, they they need to take responsibility for that. And I think with safety, we we probably um, take uh, responsibility and have it sitting in the wrong levels. And that's some of the reason why uh, we sometimes get that wrong. Uh, and then I guess just again, right, relating it back to that, uh, back to the environment. Uh, in the 1950s, so 70 odd years ago, uh, if there's any psychologists listening, there's a pretty uh, well-known uh, research done by a psychologist called Douglas McGregor. Uh, it was called Theory X and Theory Y. And that was about uh, people's motivation in and around the workplace and different uh, management styles. Uh, and, and one of his main uh, findings or one of the findings from that was uh, that given the right environment, uh, people not only take responsibility, they seek it. So if we have people in the workforce who, who aren't taking responsibility for what they're doing, that can could be directly related back um, to the environment that, we're, that we've created for them. Uh, so it's definitely something that uh, I think we need to, to think about and keep at the top of our minds and, and why uh, looking at the environment is, is so important over uh, taking the easy option and, and looking at compliance and ticking boxes. So these here just are two of the better definitions that I've heard of, of uh, responsibility. Um, they come from two very different people from uh, very different backgrounds. One's a, an, uh, an Indian spiritual leader and, and the other one was a, a Navy SEAL. Uh, and I took their meanings, although as you can see, they're, they're quite different. I understood them to mean the same thing. And, uh, with Sadhguru, with his responsibility simply means your ability to respond. If you decide I'm responsible, you'll have the ability to respond. If you decide I'm not responsible, uh, you will not have the ability to respond. Uh, so me, I, I look at that and if you're willing to bring something up and talk about it or complain about it, then you there is a level of responsibility there for you um, in relation to that task or thing. Um, and then with uh, Jocko Willink, he, and this is a bit of a paraphrasing, uh, it's taken from the, the book itself and, and uh, podcast that he's done in that I'm responsible for everything that happens and that gives him a, gives me a level of control and the ability to fix it. Um, and that's why I think they're, they're close related that, again, if he, if he takes responsibility for it, he can, he can control it and look at a, a better outcome. And uh, responsibility is, is a very powerful thing if you look at it in that way. Um, and if we can create that environment where people uh, can take that responsibility, um, the changes we would see would be uh, pretty dramatic, I think, uh, going forward. I think I'm sort of coming to an end. I'll 
probably ended a little bit quickly. Uh, but uh, just some quick takeaways. Uh, I think, uh, first of all, that there are definitely some challenges with what I've just spoken about. Uh, and I think the main thing is that, that they're very hard to measure. And I guess that's why it's probably um, not so much of a focus. Uh, all the other things with KPIs, inspections, we can we can easily uh, take them down, record them, and uh, we get a number at the end and, and we show that that's how we're, we're doing it. But these things with uh, the environment and commitment, trust and uh, responsibility, they're, they're really hard to measure. And I, I completely understand that uh, people want evidence-based um, uh, research, uh, but I don't think we should dismiss it just because it's really uh, hard to hard to measure. Um, I also think that that uh, creating that right environment allows people to hold themselves to a higher standard, and and uh, in that definition from David Marquette about uh, commitment being intrinsic, and when people have that uh, intrinsic motivation, then then uh, that's when the, the results really come. So uh, just because it's hard to measure, I don't think uh, we shouldn't try and, and create it. So with the takeaways, create an environment with high levels of trust, uh, seek commitment, not compliance, and um, we should make uh, the system uh, simple and flexible. And that sort of relates to the responsibility in that the people doing the task need the, the ability to change um, things in the moment when they're doing it um, without all the levels above um, and going through that bureaucracy. Um, if they can see a simple fix, um, they should be able to uh, uh, do it on the spot and get the job done. Uh, so, yeah, I've probably come up a little bit short. Um, but thank you very much. Uh, hopefully Sarah has some questions for me um, from everyone. I'm more than happy to answer, but uh, thanks for listening and I, I hope you took a, a little bit away from it. Thank you, Adam. Um, that's the second time that book has been mentioned in the last few weeks. Um, so I'll just drop, there aren't any questions right now, but. Um, maybe in a minute. Um, I just want to drop in the chat a little bit of um, a link to the webinar next week. And while I wait, see if there's any questions. There you go. So um, we don't have any questions. Um, so we'll probably leave it. Very, very easy on me. <laughs> that means you did a really good job, Adam. Um, David said, thanks, Adam, great presentation. So um, thank you, everyone, for joining us. I'll see you next week. And thank you so much, Adam, for doing that. It was nice to meet you at the conference. No worries. Thank you very much, Sarah. Appreciate you having me. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.